Father Teresa's wine cellar, we believe all oppression is intersectional. And this means our analysis of current events frequently includes discussion of difficult and explicit content. Any combination of the following topics could be included in our show. Murder, rape, war, climate change, racism, sexism, violence, sexual violence, homophobic violence, Heterocentrism, oh, discrimination, <laughs> and abuse against individuals of nonconformist sexuality, domestic violence, child abuse, child rape, child neglect, elderly abuse, verbal abuse, police brutality, microaggressions, ableism, cyberbullying, genital mutilation, ideological extremism, and people just being total fucking assholes. All right, and um, what was popping the decibels right there was Phoenix Polliter opening cookies mm-hmm. right by the microphone. I like cookies. I didn't. <laughs> and, then, and then pops the decibels to say, I like cookies. The same person is like, I don't want to yell. <laughs> I like cookies. <laughs> C is for cookie. <laughs> Which is good enough for me. Exactly. Oh, I'm just man. trying to get my Sesame Street on, nigga. I still say those those fucking Martians on there still scare the shit out of me. Those things were horrible. Yeah, yeah, those yip 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 yip. You remember them? Y'all y'all remember them niggas on Sesame Street? I was scared of Mister Rogers' puppets. God, so that totally fucks off my little idea that I have that I totally won't be able to follow through on because exactly. of capitalism. Oh, I think I told you, Mister Williams' Laborhood. Oh yeah, just yeah. don't have the fucking creepy puppets. That's the thing. I want the puppets. Make them not creepy. Okay, I gotta see what what um, Rogers joints look like because I didn't like Rogers when I was three. I think it was like extra creepy to me because he was clearly doing like hand puppets, but he was also doing the voices. Oh, <laughs> I think maybe it was the I don't know. I just I wasn't feeling it. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah when I was a kid, I, I liked Sesame Street, and then um, I saw I didn't really like Thundercats, but it was on, so it's just kind of like I mean I'm a kid and this is a cartoon, so let's do this. Um, and then I, I saw Ghostbusters. Yeah. And I was still three. I think I was like barely four at this point. Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, okay, whatever this kind of tea, can we get more of whatever this is? <laughs> right? Because I didn't know the word comedy, you know, but I knew that the way this Bill Murray guy talks is fucking funny as shit to me. Like, I could listen to this guy do whatever the fuck this is all day. I was about all about David the Gnome as a kid. David the Gnome. I fucked with that. probably explains a lot about me as an adult. (laughs) David the Gnome. 
You can carve your name in the tree, but only if the tree is dead, because you don't want to harm an alive tree. tree. Yeah. Woo! David the Gnome, gummy bears. Yeah. Bouncing here and there and everywhere. Oh, fucking um, Inspector Gadget. Yeah, heavy on I liked, Inspector I liked Gadget. Inspector Gadget. Inspector Gadget. That 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 sows the early feminist roots. <laughs> you just like really Penny has to bail this nigga out of every fucking thing. Everything all the time. Right? Like she had to fucking like invent the iPhone in the eighties. She did, right? She had like the book and it was like a fucking like smartphone and shit. <laughs> fucking Penny had Wi Fi and Bluetooth and shit. Yeah, Penny was amazing. Um, yeah, and then it was, uh, what else, what other cartoons were there? I don't know. Ah, oh, fuck. Uh, like, Heathcliff, I liked Heathcliff. I, yeah, Heathcliff, it was one of those where I was like, I mean, I get it, like, these riff raff in them, that, which is kind of funny, that name alone, like, that was, um, I, I was amused by them a little bit. Yeah. But again, now you gotta realize, at this point, I'm going into five years old. Yeah. I've already been watching Married with Children for a year. <laughs> Like, I'm already fucking with Al Bundy. So it is harder and harder to watch shit that's supposed to be for my age group. Mm. Though I still mm-hmm. like that. Like, I like Nickelodeon. I like Doug. Yeah. Doug. But again, as you break it down, Doug was a kid with anxiety. It was relatable. Yeah. Like, he had anxiety issues. It was yeah. great. And Skeeter was supposed to be black. Skeeter was. Allegedly. When you hear his dad's voice at the dinner table, that they were black. Yeah, well, no, I mean, they were, but, like, the writers came back and were like, oh, we were trying not to make anything racial. And I was like, well, you okay. You white, nigga. Come on now. <laughs> like, Patty Mayonnaise is clearly, like, Latina. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right. But, yeah, you know, they didn't want to do anything racial. So. Didn't want to make anything racial, which is why the principal... Who was the leadership of the school was white, Lamar Bone, mm-hmm. and um, and Doug and his family are white. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Roger was supposed to be Jewish. Really? Uh, yeah. A Jewish bully? Yes. <laughs> yes. So this is, so Roger was like the original boiler room. Oh, someone's <laughs> getting that reference. Holy shit. Yes. That is... And you know what? And that's how stereotypes work, right? That mm-hmm. means whatever propaganda has worked in my head that I can't even... A Jewish bully? Well, I never. I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure that, like, you know, some Jewish folks of Bernie's age from Brooklyn could probably throw down. Shit, Bernie like, can. Still. Like, Bernie could still maybe kick my ass. <laughs> right, didn't he, like, he, like, lit a wood-burning stove in one try and yeah, shit? And... Fucking probably. He was playing basketball, like, last year and shit. <laughs> oh, fuck, man, I don't know. Like, now, the thing is, like, can he beat Obama on the court? Uh, okay, let's not push it. <laughs> yeah, because, like, I saw a video clip of Barry, like, handling the basketball. Mm-hmm. What the magical fuck? How? Oh, he's good? He's good? I haven't seen him play. I never seen a Harlem Globetrotter from Hawaii. All right. This is supposed to be book club. Yeah. Wow. All right. It's 1249 PM. Are folks tired of hearing me tell you about what I, what it is I got to do. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it is indeed November 21st. Mm-hmm. After five more shifts, I get a day off. Yes. And I'm going to, Toke like three fat doobies straight to the face in a row. Just boom, 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 straight to the face. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to hop in the garage and get to organizing. 
with me headphones on me head and I'm going to be jamming to some sounds mm-hmm. and mo- and getting the garage together. Because right now, like the garage, it's fun pulling the car in, isn't it? Oh, yes. Like if that car was not economy size, fuck it outside. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the fact that we have something slightly larger than a smart car, <laughs> it's uh we can get the damn thing in there. So, yeah, I need to wrap that up. Um, I went down, so folks may have heard Maddie Stump on the program. Maddie Stump is already scheduled to come back and, uh, regularly at that. So Maddie Stump wanted to come on for, uh, Transgender Day of Remembrance, T-D-O-R. And, um, and Maddie Stump brought a lot of news that the wine cellar had been missing for Mm -hmm. that episode. And I'm like, holy shit, that's a concept. Let's, like get someone who knows the news can articulate why this story is important very well mm-hmm. and wants to do it right that's a big thing like i i want to fuck with folks that want to do the program yeah. and so i think when maddie comes back every time it's it you know it'll be a wine cellar social dissonance show but i'll be calling it open the door Open the door, D-O-O-R, Days of Our Remembrance. All right, so Maddie Stump will be coming on to open the door with you. Can you dig it? Mm-hmm. All right, Phoenix answered for you. <laughs> I, hope some, some, right, I hope someone's listening, like, on a city bus or something, like, yeah, I can dig it, yeah. <laughs> and other people on the bus, like, what the fuck is your problem? This nigga has COVID. Restrain him. <laughs> All right. So on the video, I'll go ahead and click play. So for folks that are getting this through the Facebook video live, uh, you will see funny toddlers and pets. Well, that's fun. All right. And um, and folks just getting the audio. You don't have to worry about the video. You'll just be hearing Thomas, Frank and us. Mm-hmm. So let's get back into this book. A brief history of anti-populism. Um, uh, the people know a brief history of anti-populism and I, um, and I'm going to order this book cause Jeff Bezos doesn't have enough money and it's called black on both sides and it, um, and Maddie Stump wants to do this book as well for a side, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, punk ass book jockeying. <laughs> so yeah, we're mixing it all together. The wine cellar, I, I wasn't fucking around 2020 uh acceleration year yes all right so we're fucking doing it all right let's let's hop into this thomas frank i'll give it a little bit of a rewind to pick up from where we left off on the last joint skip de flip de dibble do boop de bop de barble flu at all what modern anti-populist theory holds it to be and to suggest furthermore that populism may well be the key to turning our nation around I make no claim that the New Deal ushered in utopia, or even that it practiced what it preached. It didn't, as everyone knows. Regardless of how Paul Robeson stirred his listeners' souls, there were hotels and restaurants all across the country that could lawfully have refused him service. And while the CIO represented democratic aspirations of the best kind, it came a cropper in the South, just as populism did, a shortcoming for which middle-class Americans everywhere eventually paid the price. Even so, it is vitally important to remember the words and the deeds of those days, the years when American liberals laughed at economic laws, sent the money changers packing, and declared the people are what matter, were also the years of peak liberal greatness. 
Populism's days of cultural ascendancy in this country coincided with the gradual conquest of economic depression and with America's victory in World War II. Populism is what strengthened the unions and built a middle-class democracy. Populism, rightly understood, is what allowed Roosevelt to win four presidential elections and Harry Truman a fifth. It is what gave Democrats such a solid majority in the House of Representatives that they didn't lose it, except for two brief interregnums, until 1994. American liberals need to remember how their tradition thought and how it talked when it was strong and vital. Damn it, folks. Okay, until 1994. Um, Mm -hmm. Damn it. And don't we always do this and then they mention it anyway? Yes. So 1994, that was basically the Newt Gingrich Congress. And who got elected right before that? William Jefferson Clinton. Yes. All right. The, um, you know, the person that Hillary Clinton stayed with this whole time. <laughs> you know, j- just to be an example to, to to the young girls, you fucking stay with your rapist. All right. And um, <clears throat> and remember, like, uh, what Newt Gingrich did to celebrate that win yeah. made Rush Limbaugh an honorary member of Congress because of all the work he did to help them win with his right-wing propaganda. Yep. Because the explosion of right-wing radio after the um, uh, dissolvement of the, uh, the, the, of the Fairness Doctrine. Mm-hmm. All right? And keep in mind, this is two years before the, the Bill Clinton telecommunications. Yeah. All right. And don't forget that um, conservative talk radio was given to us by Democrats. Ah, oh, fuck. Did I, I yeah. think I remember that. Yeah. Like, um, like the guy who um, basically funded like talk radio was a like a Democrat, like a liberal Democrat from California. But he was like, oh, this is a good way to make money because there's still, you know, conservatives in these little, um, you know, like hot spots, even in like liberal cities like L.A. or San Francisco or whatever. And so was like, let's give them 24-7 access. And that was how we got, like, all the Rush Limbaugh's and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right. I know folks want to hear the book. <laughs> Damn it. But we can't help it. Shit. Oh, man. That's so bad. In order to figure out how it might do so again. Chapter 4. The Upheaval of the Unfit. Not everyone loved the common man in the age of Roosevelt. For all the tears that liberals shed over Dust Bowl migrants, the Depression also saw a powerful backlash against democracy in general and against economic democracy in particular. The decade that produced The People Yes also gave us The Revolt of the Masses, in which Jose Ortega y Gasset deplored the empowerment of the vulgar herd, and also The Hour of Decision, in which Oswald Spengler defined democracy as mob rule and bad taste. Oh. The hell happened to Thomas Frank? Mr. Frank. (laughs) Mr. Window. The Depression also saw a powerful backlash against democracy in general and against economic democracy in particular. The decade that produced The People Yes also gave us the revolt of the masses, in which Jose Ortega y Gasset deplored the empowerment of the vulgar herd, and also the hour of decision, in which Oswald Spengler defined democracy as mob rule and bad taste.
Okay. Hey. Hey. <laughs> that gummit. All right. It looks like I'm going to have to reload the Thomas Frank window. That is bootanical. That is so booty that I have to stretch the word out. Really? Gee, willikers. Okay. Come on, buddy. All right, so I need to go to... Uh, right right on. I, I really wanted to do this right in the broadcast. Ah, <laughs> uh, fucking... Here we go, buddy. Let's go ahead and get this damn thing reloaded. We're going to go ahead on to audible.com. Ah! Where I... um. Well, actually, uh, folks that support the wine cellar paid for us to have an audible.com account. So we thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, fact, nigga, thank yourself. You made it happen. Oh, listening ass niggas. <laughs> uh, that's how you got to talk to them. Let them know what time I don't think that's is. how you're supposed to talk to the audience. These are facts. Mm, no. Listener page. Okay, so I need to go to my listener page. There we go. All right, now we're signed in. Here we go. Oh, apparently I have zero helpful votes and zero reviews and zero ratings. Well. And we are listed on there as Wine Cellar Media, so we're helping. Are we really? Yep. Nice. Oh, fuck. So apparently, and on Audible, in my library, (laughs) I have The People Know, the book we're doing now, Korahidora, which is, um... It's a novel um, that uh, that Fury did because Fury does a book club just as a group of people, mm-hmm. and um, and then I have one that I did just to make fun of it, and it's um, how to tell if a white woman likes black men mm. by some clown ass nigga named Trevor Klinger, and it's just some shit I want to make fun of. All right, so back to a brief history of anti-populism. Come on, let's play it on back. I said, let's play it on back. No. Get to playing. No. Not everyone loved the common man in the age of Roosevelt. For all the tears that liberals shed over Dust Bowl migrants, the Depression also saw a powerful backlash against democracy in general and against economic democracy in particular. The decade that produced The People Yes also gave us the Revolt of the Masses, in which Jose Ortega y Gasset deplored the empowerment of the vulgar herd, and also the Hour of Decision, in which Oswald Spengler defined democracy as mob rule and bad taste, a system so weak it could never last. Looking back on the decade of the 30s, it is easy to forget how many people around the world decided in those years that democracy was finished that the global economic depression had revealed government by the people to be a failure. Democratic governments everywhere dithered and crumbled, their glad-handing politicians useless in the face of the crisis. Americans lost faith as well. At the end of his landmark three-volume history of this period, the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. assembled a series of shocking quotes from prominent Americans in the early 30s, all of whom were convinced that democracy was either doomed or that it deserved to die. A sampling. The moral and intellectual bankruptcy of liberalism in our time needs no demonstration. It is as obvious as rain and as taken for granted. Political democracy is moribund. 
Civil liberties like democracy are useful only as tools for social change. Political democracy as such a tool is obviously bankrupt throughout the world. Modern Western civilization is a failure. That theory is now generally accepted. These were fairly extreme statements, but pessimism about the future of democracy was common during the Depression, talking at you from the radio or the pulpit, scolding you from the editorial page. The form it ultimately took was what I have been calling anti-populism. The problem, the anti-populists maintained, was excessive democracy. Just as in 1896, the right order of things was menaced by mob action, by a rising up of the ignorant. Government by the people had become a threat to property, to the Constitution, and hence to democracy itself. Depression-era anti-populism took a while to find its voice. In 1932, the ideological opposition to Roosevelt was weak. The Hoover administration had failed by any standard of judgment, and no one really knew how much would change when the gloomy Republican was replaced by the sunny aristocrat from upstate New York. What FDR meant by a New Deal was still vague, and his party's platform in 32 was perfectly conventional, recommending balanced budgets and an end to prohibition. Perhaps it would merely be another instance of the outs replacing the ins, lots of noise signifying nothing. Very quickly, however, it became clear that Roosevelt was working an enormous change in the economic role of the federal government, or as he himself put it in his State of the Union address in 1936, a new relationship between government and people. Under his direction, the United States finally left the gold standard. It handed out relief to the unemployed. It hired armies of people to build bridges and buildings, to paint murals and shovel snow. It set up a national old-age pension scheme. It bailed out homeowners. It bailed out farmers. It regulated banks and countless other industries. It protected unions and encouraged workers to join them. There were strikes in every city. New walkouts were happening all the time, and in an alarming number of them, business owners were being forced to settle. Each of these developments by itself would have been a momentous change. Now they were happening together all at once. The big business community reeled in shock. Its leaders looked for a way to fight back. The showdown came in the election of 1936. As the political parties maneuvered and the nation's elites chose sides, it became plain that this campaign would be a battle royal, an all-or-nothing war over the future direction of the nation, a crusade, from one perspective, for freedom in the Constitution, or, viewed slightly differently, an attempt by the once-privileged to regain their former position. Either way, it was to be a referendum on big government and the welfare state. There were three main components of the anti-Roosevelt forces. The Republican Party furnished the presidential candidate, Kansas Governor Alf Landon, who had been something of a progressive in earlier days but was now willing to commit himself to the defeat of the New Deal. He would attack all of it, from Social Security to the WPA, as an imposition on freedom itself. Hmm. Whoa, what's up my microphone? Okay, this is going to be AOC's trajectory, kids. I need to make an edit at 23 minutes and 40 seconds. 
Even more important than the Republican Party in 1936 was the independent political effort mounted by big business. The organizations through which business leaders distributed their propaganda were many, but the one that mattered most was called the American Liberty League. The first of the nation's great right-wing front groups, the Liberty League was set up by a handful of wealthy people, chiefly from the DuPont family, who had special reason to hate and fear the triumph of progressives. With the lavish budget its wealthy backers furnished, the League followed the strategy pioneered by Mark Hanna 40 years previously, producing speeches, radio broadcasts, pamphlets, and a blizzard of panic-screaming headlines. The Liberty League was better funded and far better organized than a traditional political party, which made it the de facto leading opposition to Roosevelt, as one scholarly study recalls. The third part of the 36 Crusade was the newspaper industry, which came together against the would-be dictator Roosevelt the same way it had united against Bryan in 1896. The reason for journalism's overwhelming hostility to the president seems obvious in retrospect. The owners of the nation's papers were wealthy figures who regarded themselves as spokesmen for their local business communities. They also felt their immediate interests to be threatened by the unionization that the New Deal encouraged. Whatever the reason, their cohesion was remarkable. Okay, what does that sound like you said? Oh, I said that sounds like uh, how they did Bernie, right? Where it was like the mainstream media went up against him because they were trying to protect their own interests and his idea of texting the millionaires and the billionaires and living wages and shit is directly opposed to that. The more things change. (laughs) And I think I should just leave our microphones on. Oh, okay. Yep. Against him. The historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. put it at 75% of the country's big city newspapers. Frank Luther Mott, in American Journalism, suggests that 63% of all the nation's papers were opposed to the president. The year 1936 was to be a great mustering of society's elites, assembling for war against populism once again. The Roosevelt administration, they would charge, was a dangerous departure from established and bipartisan economic consensus. It was the work of cranks, radicals, and demagogues. It was the product of one man's mental illness. It was the tragic outcome of a system that permitted ordinary people to hand down judgments on matters that were far above their station. And so another democracy scare gripped the country. One node where the fear began was the National Association of Manufacturers, the NAM, the Great Ideological Union of American Industry, which had been waging a propaganda war against organized labor for decades before the New Deal arrived on the scene. The Depression and its political consequences, however, would prove to be the greatest challenge in the NAM's life, requiring its most advanced efforts. The central idea in the NAM's vast output in the 30s, according to historian Richard Tedlow, was the, quote, harmony of all classes. There need be no conflict between business owner and business employee, the NAM maintained, nor was there any need for friction between business and government. Consensus was the natural and normal condition of economic life. Prosperity dwells where harmony reigns. 
as the NAM slogan had it. The reality of the Depression was anything but harmonious. In 1934, the NAM made a series of proposals to President Roosevelt to get the economy going again, asking him to reverse himself on nearly every front, put the country back on the gold standard, balance the federal budget, crack down on labor, and generally to do whatever would make business owners happy. Roosevelt did not comply. His aides scoffed at the NAM's suggestions, and the New Deal chugged onward. Workers organized, regulators regulated, and the WPA continued to hire unemployed people. An ugly mood began to sweep the business community. In a controversial 1935 article, the financier E.F. Hutton said he felt the pain of the stockholder who got to, quote, watch the value of his securities gradually destroyed by unwarranted attacks of demagogues in high places, <laughs> meaning by New Deal regulation. Then Hutton urged his corporate colleagues to join forces and enlist in the class war. I say, let's gang up. Gang up on the elected government in Washington, that is. Business leaders, Hutton said, needed to build a, quote, unbroken front of upper-class solidarity. The businessmen of the country, he urged, the owners of stocks and bonds or any other property, the holders of insurance policies, and the depositors in banks must realize that the only way to prevent regimentation, collectivism, or any other ism is for all groups to join together in one great group which will come to the help of any individual group when it is attacked. When E.F. Hutton talked, people listened. Many of them were outraged by what they heard him saying, but a few saw the wisdom of his remarks. Gang up is precisely what business leaders did. A few months later, at their next annual meeting, the members of the NAM enlisted for the duration. Industry has been forced to enter the political arena, proclaimed the association's president, or be destroyed as a private enterprise. The scene at the gathering was electric. The assembled businessmen approved a passionate manifesto denouncing the New Deal's dictatorship. If they make us pay our workers a living wage, will be slightly less rich and can't afford the youngest and firmest and hottest of sex workers out there, especially ones who don't want to. Mm, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I mean, it's really the same as always. Fucking the job creators, right? Because these are the people who would have been the job creators back then. We have to listen to what they want. Fuck the workers. Yeah. And that's always been in my head, like before all this, like dealing with the words capitalism and socialism and communism and any of those words, I remember just kind of being in my early 20s and just looking around at shit. <laughs> and just being like, you know, the way this whole thing is set up with money and economics and whatever the fuck is going on here. Yeah. I can't help but imagine that ugly men have the most incentive <laughs> to want to keep this system in play. Yeah. It just seems that they would really like this. Yeah. You know, I'm not talking about Jay-Z. I'm talking about Sean Carter. That's, I mean, you know, don't worry about it. Wow. Which actually reminds me, have you seen the article going around? Like, the headline is literally something like, um, other countries have social safety nets, America has women. 
Hmm. Like talking about like unpaid labor and shit and how it's really like kicked off with um, COVID. How women are doing so much more unpaid labor than they used to be doing. Huh. Yeah. Shit, man. Do you still have that article? I can find it. Yeah, I guess obviously not for now. It's already 1.14 p.m. All right. More Thomas Frank. And men that like capitalism for some reason. And espousing the American system of private enterprise. One eminent man after another declared his selfless concern for his country and the working masses. A Detroit steelmaker counseled the NOM's members to talk politics with their employees and take control of the Republican Party. A business school professor advised them to submit to regulation but to resist control in the description of the New York Times. A ferocious anti-populist note was struck by shipbuilder Clinton Bardot, who berated the economic crackpots, social reformers, labor demagogues, and political racketeers who, he claimed, had made the Depression so much worse. The New Deal, he continued, was, quote, the most savage and concerted political attempt ever made toward the destruction of our industrial system. The same sort of gripe could be heard in every corner of upper America. One fine day in 1934, a vice president at DuPont wrote a letter to a former chairman of General Motors to complain about the New Deal. Here is how it had ruined his life. Oh, great. Five Negroes on my place in South Carolina. Oh, come on, man. (laughs) After I had taken care of them and given them house, rent-free, and work for three years during bad times. He said, here's how it went. I knew it was going to be some bullshit. Yeah. Let's give that a running start. Oh, man. Five Negroes. Anytime a white man wants to tell you about five Negroes, (sighs) listen up. You are about to hear. I mean, I'm not going to say what you're going to hear is the truth. You're going to hear his interpretation of the truth. You're going to hear the most honest form of the white man. (laughs) Remember Clive and Bundy? As soon as he said, let me tell you something else I know about the Negro, I was jazzed. I was like, yeah, the news cycle's about to get extra awesome. And then that was the last time Rachel Maddow did anything good. And dead up. I posted the video myself. I can um, find it on Facebook and repost it. Her, like, 20 minutes that she spent doing the history behind Clive and Bundy's mm-hmm. doing that sentence was good shit. I want to actually, I might check out her uh, Kyle Rittenhouse coverage. Because you saw that he's out on bail and he bought his gun with a COVID stimulus check. <laughs> it's good. She might actually have, like, good coverage on that one. I'll check it out. Maybe. I guess we have to go online, though, because we don't have the kind of cable service that gets us big, fancy brunch time channels like MSBNC. Or, I forgot the name of them. Shit. BBC Head Powder? Wait, what the fuck? What MSNBC? That's it, yeah. Jesus. Them niggas. I don't be watching them, yo. All I know is that MSDNC page on Twitter. Like, that's what I know. All right, get back to it. He heard in every corner of upper America. One fine day in 1934, a vice president at DuPont wrote a letter to a former chairman of General Motors to complain about the New Deal. Here is how it had ruined his life. Quote, five Negroes on my place in South Carolina refused work this spring after I had taken care of them and given them house rent free and work for three years during bad times, saying they had easy jobs with the government. A cook on my houseboat at Fort Myers quit because the government was paying him a dollar an hour as a painter when he never knew a thing about painting before. The former GM bigwig felt his colleague's pain. 
something was indeed going very wrong in this country. Hold up. Hold up, nigga. All I know is the colloquialism, so maybe I'm incorrect if you get down to definitions. But I don't like the idea of business owners being colleagues with each other. Mm-hmm. You don't work for the same company. You don't even work for your own company. You don't work. You I don't think- have colleagues unless you work, right? Well, yeah, I think they're using colleagues to mean like peers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm still, I'm not here to be nuanced, really. I'm, <laughs> I'm here to yell about shit that I don't like. And I don't like that. I just think it's funny that he's like, well, they're not working for me for less money and I'm offended about it. Like, what, nigga? I mean, isn't that the whole, like, uh, um, work smarter, not harder? Why would you take a pay cut when you could get paid more? That's like if, like, when I left the restaurant and went to do, um, machine work and industrial mechanics like if the restaurant company was like this negro that we treated so good for 12 years mm-hmm. he doesn't know anything about machines mm-hmm. it's like nigga when i came to the restaurant i didn't know anything about restaurants <laughs> right <laughs> right remember how you did the well two days training you called it a week but two days training <laughs> With a nigga of whom wasn't even going by his um, name. Yes. Um. All right. They did that. I got 10 days out of what was supposed to be four weeks training. So I actually got eight days more training than you. So just going into it, the first month of employment, I knew more about machines than I did about restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, but the point is you should have stayed there to make less money to show your appreciation to your job creator. Well, can't do that. I got a spouse and came with a stepson and my spouse wanted three cats so that they would never be lonely. All right, Thomas Frank. In his reply, he suggested... Yes, ma'am. I'm not the one who wanted... I wanted a snake. Well, I mean... You got Warren supporters. <gasps> hey, all right. <laughs> Thomas Frank, get him. Taking care of them and giving them house rent free and work for three years during bad times, saying they had easy jobs with the government. A cook on my houseboat at Fort Myers quit because the government was paying him a dollar an hour as a painter when he never knew a thing about painting before. The former GM bigwig felt his colleagues pain. Something was indeed going very wrong in this country. In his reply, he suggested that the DuPont exec set up, quote, some very definite organization to instruct Americans on the value of encouraging people to work, encouraging people to get rich, and showing the fallacy of communism. So was born the American Liberty League, the central organization of the business resistance to Roosevelt. Spawned by an executive's frustration at uppity working people, The Liberty League was anti-populist by birth, but also by nature. As it began its educational work, it quickly became clear that the organization's grand purpose was to demonstrate elite consensus, to show that the nation's respectables stood shoulder to shoulder in solid agreement against the Rooseveltian experiment. Bipartisanship was an essential ingredient in this display. The Liberty League enlisted many prominent Democrats in its war on the Democrat in the White House, including two of the party's former presidential candidates. 
Credentialed prestige was another component. The League's spokesmen were drawn conspicuously from the most authoritative circles of economic and legal thought. The overarching message of the Liberty League's resistance to Roosevelt was simple and monotonous. The New Deal, went the complaint, was a form of dictatorship akin to those in Italy, Germany, and Russia. It was trampling upon the American Constitution. It was crushing American liberty. Who knew or cared if FDR was on the left or the right? He was clearly a would-be authoritarian, and the country needed to be saved from him and his monster government. Cue the hysteria. Crank it all the way up. A 1935 Liberty League pamphlet, authored by an economics professor from Vanderbilt University, labeled Henry Wallace, then the secretary. That was just super interesting to me as he was talking about comparing... Um, you know, what's going on in America because of government jobs, right? Welfare, government jobs to um, Germany and Italy and Russia and shit like that. Is that where the fucking thing started that um, like any type of uh, like government, um, you know, sort of like welfare or safety net is communism? Is this where this started? Because hmm. that's basically what they're arguing, right? Well, when you look at the fact that um a founding member of the John Birch Society, very anti-communist, went to Russia to get their um their their oil business up and running. <laughs> and that person's name is Fred Koch. Yes. Can you guess who his LOL dead son is? Yes. Charles or David, they're the same. Whatever. Secretary <laughs> of Agriculture, a little dictator who might yet become a real Stalin. Another pamphlet, published later that year, compared the New Deal both to the autocratic power of King George and also to the fascist systems of Mussolini and Hitler. The subtitle of a third... Yeah, I heard that shit too. Yeah, but also King George. So are we talking like Revolutionary War King George? Wait, how many King Georges were there? Why does why does Europeans... more than one. Europeans are the real hotels. We was kings. That's y'all. There were like 16 Louis. The French one. And they all ultimately became a CK. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) A description of FDR's farm program ran as follows. An analysis of a vicious combination of fascism, socialism, and communism, which cannot be harmonized with the basic principles of constitutional government in the United States. Quote, if there are any items in the march of European collectivism that the New Deal has not imitated, it must have been an oversight roared former President Herbert Hoover at the Republican convention in the summer of 1936. The administration... Wait. Hoover? So the motherfucker who Hoovervilles were literally named after... Yes. ...has something to say about economics. Yes. Nigga. But also, like, did that shit like Alex Jones be doing now? Uh, Socialism, communism, Democrats, blah. Coon Mammy Bedwinch. Like, (laughs) all right. These aren't all the same thing. Like, communism is not socialism. You know, nigga, socialism is not anarchism. Fucking like, he called basic Democrat politics racketeering. Uh. <laughs> Alex Jones is just like, all right, is it time for a uh, three syllable or more word? Let's go ahead and squeeze it. This is the definition of racketeering. <laughs> yeah, and he real folks. Uh, seriously, yo, I. I can seriously say, I think I actually conducted a two-year study. Yeah. I thought it was like you, more like three. Um, what? 
No, it was a little under two years because okay. I started um, analyzing Alex Jones 2015 in the summer, mm-hmm. and I had to stop in the spring of 2017 because I started doing the machine work. Yeah, and um, but folks, I played every episode of Infowars front to back, literally the whole three hours every day, and the two-hour Sunday show. Yeah. And then when they went to four hours, I played the whole four hours. I analyzed every second of that show to where now I can stand before you and say Alex Jones is not some weirdo conspiracy theorist dude that actually thinks there's green men or something. He doesn't think any of that shit's true. That's comedy shit that he does that keeps certain people engaged because they like the trollness of it. They mm-hmm. actually like that. Like when I, cause I also analyzed the men's rights activist podcast yeah. and they would constantly congratulate on Alex Jones on being the greatest troll ever. Mm-hmm. What his real agenda is, is fucking um, neo Confederate white supremacy. And he has some hard John Birch society ideals. Yeah. Which was shit that I was already thinking from listening to it before I went and found articles that fed into my confirmation bias, if you will. All right. And stuff. ...was a hodgepodge of usurpations, declared a Liberty League pamphlet a short while later. A would-be totalitarian state along the lines of European dictatorships. At a white-tie dinner sponsored by the League, Al Smith, the failed Democratic presidential candidate of 1928 stepped before the microphones and let loose a torrent of red baiting. The New Deal, Smith charged, had enacted socialist rather than Democratic Party principles and was at war with basic American freedoms. It was okay with him, Smith clarified, if the administration's young brain trusters wanted to, quote, disguise themselves as Norman Thomas or Karl Marx or Lenin or any of the rest of that bunch, but what I won't stand for is allowing them to march under the banner of Jefferson, Jackson, and Cleveland nor would the country, with its proud democratic tradition. You can't mix socialism or communism with that. They're like oil and water. They refuse to mix. It really sounds like um, old-timey language choices talking about Bernie Sanders. (laughs) It really fucking does. (laughs) This is against our uh, patriotic principles. This is encouraging communism. Uh, only the young people are on board with this because they're uh, like basically too inexperienced or too stupid to know how the real world works. Yeah. Al Smith had once been a close friend of Roosevelt's, and his speech made the sort of splash that grand personal betrayals of this kind always do. But the image that stuck in the public mind was the glittering audience that had dressed up in evening clothes to applaud this son of the New York streets as he denounced his former pal. Among them was a Vanderbilt, a Guggenheim, an Aldrich, a Russian princess, and Jay Cook IV, assorted bankers and industrialists and lawyers, the owner of the Washington Post. One couldn't ask for a better illustration of the true nature of the rights hand-wringing over freedom and the Constitution. Oh, the poor forsaken Constitution. Conservatives talked as though it were a covenant that had been handed down by God but from which we had strayed thanks to the infernal temptations of FDR. Now the blight of economic depression was our punishment. Whatever caused our past prosperity, declared prominent attorney William H. Staten in a 1935 Liberty League radio broadcast, 
we know that there was a time when we obeyed our constitution and were blessed above the rest of the world. And we know too that today our prosperity and happiness have given place to unemployment and distress, which accompany our neglect of the constitution. The nation's press joined in the chorus of rebuke, issuing invitations to the most extreme sort of political dread. The Los Angeles Times, to choose one paper, routinely made the darkest kind of accusations against the liberal president. Aghast at some long-forgotten episode of New Deal meddling in 1936, the paper announced that whether it was done with deliberate intention of wrecking the social structure to let collectivism inherit the earth, or whether it was merely inept blundering makes little difference. To let collectivism inherit the earth. Oh, I just had to note that. A few days after that, the Times suggested that Rooseveltian bad-mouthing of business constituted the same sort of, quote, leadership responsible for Russia and Spain and Italy and Nazi Germany. The way the Chicago Tribune... Say just straight... What, what, what's that internet rule? Because um, he just went straight to Nazi Germany. Oh, God, uh, Godwin's Law? <laughs> So so Godwin's law precedes the internet by many moons. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, actually this is actually really preceding World War II, right? They're still like in the late 30s. It's like we haven't even gotten involved with the war yet and they're already like fucking Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so Godwin's law goes back to when Hitler was still alive. Yes, because, like, what? We didn't get involved in the war till like, 41, right? And they're still, like, late 30s? <laughs> so, this is but then also, like, but also peep it, though. They're like, oh, it's so um, bad, and it's, like, unpatriotic, and it's, like, oh, the Nazis, and no freedom, and it's going to ruin the country, and blah, blah, blah. But then keep in mind, this is the same era in which people are trying to get out of Nazi Germany, and we're literally turning them away at the border and sending them back to concentration camps. Right? Like, that's that shit we did to Anne Frank, right? Like, all these Jewish folks were coming over on, um, like, boats. Like, you know, and the United States government was like, nah, fuck y'all, go back. <laughs> like, all these Jewish people died because we were literally not letting them in the country. But at the same time, these same fucking people who are, you know, in positions of power and have money are like, if you let poor people have living wages, that's like Hitler, and Nazis are bad, but then also not letting victims of Hitler come here to be safe. So, like, once again, some things never change. <laughs> and this is why David Pakman's first language is Spanish. <laughs> Welcome to it, folks. Urged panic upon its readers that year has become the stuff of legend. Here is how journalism critic George Seldes told the story in his 1938 book, Lords of the Press. Every day, the Tribune editorial page was a biased attack on Roosevelt with the heading, Turn the Rascals Out. Every day, the Tribune telephone operators said, Good morning, Chicago Tribune. There's only 43 or less days left in which to save the American way of life. Every day, truthfulness, accuracy, impartiality, fair play, and decency were flouted in the most vicious campaign against the president. In the Tribune's editorial cartoons, FDR could be seen marrying off Miss Democracy, to a bristly-headed communist, exploiting thuggish class hatred along with his communist pals, denying everything, though his hands were covered with the red jam of Moscow. On a <laughs> what the fuck is it with America blaming Russia for everything? What is that? Russia stole our capitalism, democracy, <laughs> state, heat, and gas going to your house in Boston. Russia took it all. 
Russia it took it all. I mean, I could play that right now or, you know, I guess it wasn't an audio recording, but put that right now and just act like it's new journalism about Antifa. <laughs> thuggish. Yep. Fucking thuggish commies. Yep. October 20th, the Tribune's lead editorial was titled The Dictatorship Emerges. The inevitable comparisons to Stalin and Hitler were duly made. A few days later, a Tribune editorial announced it will happen here unless a column of full-throated red-baiting unfolded beneath. Quote, some squeamish citizens resent calling such a program a program of communism, though that is obviously what it is. A front page Tribune like editorial healthcare? just before it's obviously day. communism. What, wait, what up? Like universal health care, it's obviously communism. It's just what the fuck it is. Mm-hmm. God damn it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let a little bit more play here so I can get a good stop point for the next episode. Because we are at 52 minutes of uh, recording and broadcasting. And it is 1.35 p.m. So that would give me good time to um, stop it. Uh, do a little edit, if I remember right, the 24 and minutes and 30 second area, and um, and go ahead and get this thing uploaded before I head to the factory so it'll be there and available. All right? Declared, you should realize that November 3rd is the most fateful day in the history of the American people. Do not consider that statement an exaggeration. November 3rd again? <laughs> But also keep in mind, that's exactly how they framed this election was we have to get um, Bernie out of the primary because he can't win because he's a fucking Antifa communist. And we have to vote Trump out and use moderates, moderate policy to replace him. Like the state of the union is at stake, people. And it just happens to be November 3rd. Yep. Just like it was this year. Just like it was the first year that I was aware that my mother was uh, getting me into this shit. And it was that again. Because what is like every 19 years or every 26 years? Eh, whatever Like is. all the calendar days are exactly the same again? If Landon is not elected, you may... Wait, my bad. Because of leap years, it has to be something divisible by four. So don't go by any of those, I said. <laughs> I have seen the last of free government as you have known it. A nearby cartoon showed FDR happily urging a blindfolded Uncle Sam over a cliff marked dictatorship. And then a shot right out of 1896. In the first of a long series of editorials titled Turn the Rascals Out, the Tribune declared that Election Day 1936 was, quote, the chance to get rid of repudiators, devaluators, and inflationists of the men responsible for the tampering with the national currency, the national credit, and the national honesty. It was an almost exact repeat of the bill of grievances with which the nation's newspapers had charged William Jennings Bryan. Of course, the Liberty League and its spokesmen also tried to present themselves as the voice of ordinary people. They loved to quote Jefferson, rail against tyranny, and cry out in the name of that great big middle class we refer to as the backbone and rank and file, as Al Smith put it at that ultra-fancy league dinner. The league's elitism was obvious in its face, however. Its pamphlets proudly listed the names of the extremely wealthy individuals who sat on its national executive committee. And whatever cultural authority the organization had was derived not from its intimacy with the rank and file, but from its relationship with the dignified and the credentialed, by which I mean distinguished scholars and high-ranking corporation lawyers. A consensus of the respectable was, as always, 
the form that the opposition to populism took, and in the publications of the Liberty League, men of eminence and standing demonized the challenge to social hierarchy. Roosevelt represented mob rule, they said. Roosevelt violated norms and flouted the accepted boundaries of politics and economics. Roosevelt prioritized the shiftless and the lazy over the capable and the talented. Roosevelt coddled the weak and enslaved the strong. Roosevelt was mentally ill. Roosevelt's New Deal represented an uprising of the lower orders who wanted merely to pillage their betters. Like Brian before him, Roosevelt... Literally, they said exactly the same shit about Bernie. And it sounds like Paul Ryan in general, too, right? Fucking, yeah. hey, there's makers and there's takers. Right, right. Or what the fuck did he say? Um, You need to go to the hood and teach black kids how to have a work ethic or something? Wait, oh, that Paul Ryan? Yeah. With the, the brown paper bag lunch? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, he's saying like he, he was proud to have that brown paper bag because it meant his parents went to work and earned his lunch. Oh. And he wasn't getting a free lunch. Yeah, he said, um, she said that too. But no, he said something specifically about like black neighborhoods, like black men don't have like a culture of working or something. Oh, I think that, yeah, that was Polly Wally Ryan boy. Here, okay, yeah, we'll stop Thomas Frank there. I'll, matter of fact, I'll run it back about 60 seconds. So when we come back, we get a running head start on that. And uh, just for funsies, yes. let's uh, see if I can't sniff that up. Matter of fact, I already have the screen share on this YouTube with these, um, for the most part, white toddlers and pets. <laughs> I know folks like to see that, white toddlers having a good time with their parents' pets. Uh, let's see. Um, so I'm going to search Paul Ryan. Black men work all right oh i'm not playing sam cedar's clip <laughs> okay this one's from four years ago four years ago was 2016 i don't know how mm -mm. ah the young turks have a commentary so i'm looking for six years ago it looks like this clip we're talking about yeah it's been a while Damn, I might actually just have to go with the uh, the Young Turks clip. Oh, wait, here's Secular Talk. Okay, Kyle Kalinske tends to play the whole clip instead of, like, uh, cutting through it. He did an interview with conservative radio host Bill Ben. Oh, damn, I tend to forget that Kyle Kalinske used to have a studio like ours. <laughs> God damn, and this nigga was recording on a Toshiba. Holy shit. Yes. That is fucking hardcore. Yo, that's like using fucking um, Microsoft Internet Explorer. Oh. Jesus, he is using a fucking Toshiba. <laughs> you see his bookshelf? His bookshelf yes. is lower than his shoulders. I see it. I see it. And why does he have the hair spiked in the middle? God damn, young man. <clears throat> All right. Whew. I get it, though. Nigga, if I was white, I would not know what to do with this fucking just gravity bound hair you can't do shit with it what like you have to bite the negro's hairstyles to get something cool going what yeah i get it man white people are oppressed uh, wow they got fucking floppy bunny ear hair bunny ear hair yeah it doesn't naturally stand up until gravity to fuck off like ours oh, does lord this is true Mm-hmm. all right and for the most part, a lot of folks that aren't, you know, Africanized black, which is why 
I want a fucking 60 day challenge on Kamala Harris's hair. Leave it alone. No touch-ups, no relax. Don't touch it with no chemicals. Uh-huh. And let's see what her real texture is. Because <clears throat> y'all keep telling me she blacked in a motherfucker. And I'm saying... <laughs> and I'm saying the cat from Kid from Kid and Play with a Jamaican father and an Irish mother as light-skinned as he is? You've yeah. seen Kid from Kid and Play's hair. Yes. Does Because Cam- Kamala Debbie is darker than him. Yeah. And if that melanin comes from such bliggity black, black, nigga, nigga, black, black, blackness, then her hair should at least be like Phoenix Kalita's hair. At least. At least. At least get like some 3C in there. Yeah. Yeah. Show me something. I just want to see her like, um, like put her shit up on a ponytail. I just want to look at the back. Oh, the kitchen. (laughs) Yes. Uh Yes. You see, but but don't touch it up for no cheating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which, oh. oh god now all the white people are gonna be like the kitchen what are you talking no oh no. shit yeah my bad you don't get to know that one because <laughs> I, I and it's not i'm trying to keep it from you i just don't care to tell you like that's the thing it's really a lack of effort on my part spin <laughs> or spiral that we're looking at in our communities your buddy charles Merck, where he mentioned number okay so he's quoting paul ryan okay one that black people don't want to work. Stay classy, Paul. And number two, he pays homage to a white nationalist. He said, quote, that's this tailspin or spiral that we're looking at in our communities. Your buddy Charles Murray or Bob Putnam over at Harvard. Those guys have written books on this, which is we have got to stop this tailspin of culture in our inner cities, in particular of men not working and just generations of men not even thinking about working and learning the value and culture of work. So there's a real culture problem here that has to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a group that tracks extremism, the guy that he mentioned there, in glowing terms, Charles Murray, is a white nationalist who has used, quote, racist pseudoscience and misleading statistics to argue that social inequality is caused by the genetic inferiority of certain people. Wow, man. I mean, I knew Paul Ryan was out there. I knew that when he was a kid, he masturbated to Ayn Rand. Uh, I know he's a loathsome guy. I know we call him Lion Ryan for a fucking reason. I mean, I remember during the 2012 election, just as well as anybody else does, the speech he gave at the convention, which was just riddled with factual errors. But this is even worse than I thought. Factual errors was real polite. (laughs) That was very nice. Yeah, that nigga just lied. (laughs) Uh, You know, Polish kids are polite. (laughs) Kalinsky, right? Kalinsky. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's. He's he's a he's a nice Polish he's young man. He's a nice man. boy. Yeah. Well, like like Bernie. Bring you some kolachkis. <laughs> yeah, those too. Kolachkis are delicious. Okay, I didn't know if you were saying a name or a food. Oh, it's a it's a like a like a cookie. Oh. Yeah. So cookies are delicious. Yeah. They're just calling them something different. No, call it something American. <laughs> call it something okay, that has okay, a little okay, freedom okay. in the flavor. A kolachki is like a jam thumbprint cookie, kind of. So like a scone. Call it something American. A scone? Scones are British. What the fuck are you talking about? 
Then how come they're sold in America? Everything sold in America is American. I need to get this Billy the Bootlicker character together. Yeah, you know what? Because Billy the Bootlicker doesn't have to do any of these silly accentuations. Hmm. I mean, fact is, if an American made it, uh huh, and if the ingredients were grown on an American farm, uh huh, and if an American truck driver drove an American truck, because really America is the only place that has real trucks, like real men, like the ones that Trump sits in and plays with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, mm-hmm. dis- despite some differences we may have, he's still an American, and he can use an American truck if he- if need be. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it's sold on the American market, like in the Puyallup Fair, very American name, I might say, on the at the Puyallup Fairgrounds. Then a scone is American. Literally everything about this product <clears throat> is American. The from- recipes from England. And and where did those people go? To bake the greatest nation on earth? All over the world, actually. To America. I need that. They didn't even know it was America when they showed up. I need that TikTok, actually. (laughs) What? The one, it's the, um, uh, the Animaniacs, where the one is singing, like, all the countries of the world, you know? And it's just, like, someone standing on a floor with, like, a line on one side, and they're like, I'm gonna jump over it every time I get to a country that, the, that Britain didn't colonize. (laughs) They don't move a lot in that video. <laughs> and it's the Animaniacs? Yeah, the Animaniacs song. But it was like someone had was doing it on their TikTok. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, if that was in the cartoon again, it's like, so, and who was making cartoons at that time? It was still boomers. So don't complain because you made millennials like this. You gonna fingerprints? Fingerprints? Oh, that's no good. <laughs> they said that on there. <laughs> really fucking dead. Somebody got fucking fired. Or a promotion. There's no in between. <laughs> so you're you're reading white nationalist books and you think that they make sense? Are you serious? That's extreme, man. This guy is off the spectrum to the right. And furthermore, the idea that people in inner cities, we all know what that's code word for, black people, minorities, people in inner cities, they... <laughs> You didn't have to say it like that. People, minorities. In inner cities, we all know what that's code word for. Black people, minorities. For black people, minorities. For black people, minorities. For black people, minorities. What? I like doing that. Man. (laughs) I can't even imitate it. People in inner cities, they don't want to work. And, I mean, the way he put it is even stronger than that. Men not working and just generations of men not even thinking about working. That is verifiably not the case. How many times have all we- right? So all right, pl- played that clip. Yes. You know, funny shit is like, I mean, if you look at like the drug dealer, yeah, that's a worker. It really is. They're fucking that's- working. We've gone over and this on the show. Oops. I've shown you the numbers. And, like, I get, like, the gross joke out there, but, like, there is a level of truth to it. Like, somebody posted a... This was years ago on the internet. Like, I think before I even knew the word meme. Mm -hmm. And it was a picture of some skid-marked undershorts. Yeah. And it said, if your draws don't look like this, you ain't a real hustler. 
Yeah. You know, and then I think back, um, uh, gangster rapper, uh, crip hop rapper from the um, Long Beach Insane 30s, uh, Tracy Davis. He goes by Trey D spelled with three E's because he's well into his 50s. He's a triple OG from Long Beach, California, still alive. And on the East Side of his album, he had that lyric where he said, I still wear the same pair of khakis least three days, mm-hmm. nappy ass French braids, and it ain't no thing. And it's like, there's a reality to that. And then you got to look at that. Like, <clears throat> I know we're not a monolith, but there are some shared experiences. Because <laughs> um, now you jump over to Brooklyn mm-hmm. and you have a um, <clears throat> lower end Generation X, almost millennial age rapper, fabulous, known woman beater. And um, he had the lyric on the DJ Clue Professional 2 mixtape album. And uh, he said... um. uh, y'all might not never come out my verses get heard I'm a hustler I don't sleep from the first to the third Yeah, the same three days Trey D is talking about all the way on the other side of the continent Mm -hmm. right but then also and Trey and remember like Trey D has basically been tried and convicted for like everything he does so like you're not really snitching on him when you talk about his history mm-hmm. like Trey D is more of a jacker and that's cause Trey D is one of the guys he actually doesn't like working <laughs> like some dudes are like yeah I get out there and I hustle and I stay in the streets slanging this work and I run my block like 50 Cent mm-hmm. 50 Cent is one of the guys who actually liked working Trey D don't like working Trey D likes to hit a lick get like $30,000 and chill out for a couple months and yeah. then hit another lick. <laughs> like like the like jackers don't like working, but everybody can't be a jacker. Right. So yeah, there are some cats out there that really don't and there are folks like that everywhere. Nobody likes working. Nobody really likes capitalism. There's a few bootlickers and there are a few people that do get really into their activity. Rather you can look at me and this cat that I work with named Roberto at the factory. Like I'm always moving like I'm ready, like, you know, and I need to move my body. It helps bring my blood pressure down, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm ready to grab those boxes, haul them, push them, move them. Roberto be like, can I just run the machine? Roberto wants to push the right buttons and twist the wrench the right way that will allow him to just stand there and watch the machine. Like a couple days ago, they they had us covering uh, bathroom breaks. And for those five minutes that Roberto had the cover to bathroom break, I had never seen this. I've been working with this cat about three months. Never seen him so mad. Like, really? he was yelling at the people at the other end of the line because um, for some reason, they won't just put an electric conveyor here. Okay. So it's a long table and you just have to push the boxes down the table mm-hmm. while the other workers put smaller boxes inside the bigger box. Okay. <laughs> so it can go on the next conveyor to get um, stacked on a pallet and moved by a forklift driver. And he's pushing them and he's like, come on, you gotta take it. He push- He's pushing them extra hard. He's really? throwing boxes because he does not like the physical, I have to do this thing over and over again work. Yeah. Which, um, and I can't remember who said this. I think it may have been Crystal Ball. I don't praise Crystal Ball. I'm just noting this may have been the person that said this. Mm-hmm. That, um, peep that they're saying, uh, folks are 
mad that they that they don't want to go back to work because they're getting stimulus checks that are more than what they're getting paid. Yeah. But they pointed out they were also like, it's not that they don't want to go back to work. They don't want to go back to drudgery. Yeah. Which I thought was such a great word for that. Like it is drudgery. Like those repeated activity over and over again. Like you got real for eight hours. That's literally just the task over and over again. Mm-hmm. Is you have a flat stack of boxes and you pick up a box, turn it, make it cubicles so stuff can go in it, and you push it down the table <laughs> over and fucking over again. There's a reason Sisyphus was in Greek mythology as a punishment. <laughs> Uh, what was what Sisyphus? What's that? Is a guy who basically got sent to hell, and basically his thing is uh, he has to roll a rock up a hill. But if he ever gets it to the top, he can quit. But it never makes it to the top because he's like in a hell time loop. And as soon as he gets close to the top, it rolls back down, and he has to walk back down the hill and start over for eternity. That's his punishment. Yeah. And there's like something about that that's like just very. <laughs> it fucking. Like, that's why, folks, like, um, I mean, I, I I may actually get another Bluetooth speaker, which means this is just going to be a household with, like, 50 Bluetooth speakers. <laughs> now, granted, two of them were for free. I Yeah, yes. what? No, I think, like, two or three were free. And three I actually, were free. Yeah, and I purchased two. Yeah. I got one because I wanted a big one for, like, the kitchen and shit. Which, I mean, I guess big, I can hold it up to the camera. Oh, it's in the bathroom, never mind. But yeah, it's it's one of those, like, little Sony, um, like, cylinder-shaped ones. Yeah. And uh, But I tr- I'm trying to get the right kind of small Bluetooth speaker that'll comfortably fit in my hard hat. Because having something playing really helps with the drudgery. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what the fuck it is, <clears throat> right? Stand-up comedy on Pandora Radio. Uh, one of my mini playlists in my music fo- folder, mm-hmm. a podcast, fucking something. And I'll listen to shit I disagree with. I just want to hear something. Yeah. And some people will be like, well, just talk to your coworkers, joke around. On the one, I'm me. <laughs> okay. Have you met me? Have you heard <clears throat> the podcast? Like, joking around means that most likely I have to joke around with other cis-hetero men. (sighs) Now, I'm not going to engage in or laugh at transphobic jokes, homophobic jokes, misogynistic jokes. You see where this is going? Exactly how much fun do you expect me to have joking (laughs) around with other cis-hetero men? But then outside of that, mm-hmm. this literally is multicultural. There's so many different languages on this floor that you really can't do that much for the most part. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to hear some shit. I want to hear. I'll, I'll listen to William Lane Craig. I don't give a fuck. I want to hear something because mm-hmm. those fucking drudgery tasks, they fuck with your head. Yeah. You know, I don't want to inadvertently say some ableist shit, but you know, like as the British folks would say, it's doing me Ed in just doing this thing over and fucking over again. Yeah. And today's Saturday, so I probably won't be on the machine. I might just be stuck on a drudgery task. And the worst thing is they got these big clocks on the walls. And depending on where you're positioned for that day, you may or may not be facing a clock. So now you have to deliberately try to keep your head down so that you don't keep looking at the clock the whole time. Yeah. That's fun. All right. I was supposed to stop 
way longer ago. It's one fifty-seven. God damn it. Yes. Um, all right, so I'm gonna try to upload this real fast and rush out the door. Yeah. All right. Um. Stop. Share. Uh. Facebook Live. Wait a second. Um. Shit. There we go. Okay. That there. I stopped the screen share. Oh, there's us on the big whiteout screen. Howdy do, fuckaroo. Um, yeah, how do you do fuckaroo? There you sure, go. Sure, that makes sense. I want to go back and try to find that article now about the um, indigenous tribe mm. where, like, nobody works. Yeah, but they also, like, it's a very small group of people, but they have, like, more, um, like, world-renowned artists than, like, any other, like, people group in the world because nobody has jobs. This one's uh, uh, Turtle Island, Canada? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, like, yeah, like, they'll have, you know, like, hunting season or whatever, or, like, you know, we're all going to get together and fix somebody's roof, like, shit like that. But it's like, once, like, the necessities are over, there's just, you time. Develop a develop a skill. Yeah. Get a hobby. Like, make some art. Fucking, you know. Or, like, I would even present the argument of, like, all right, so, on our lines, we got to hit 85% for some reason. Because, for you know, when I started in 2016... It was 80%, but mm-hmm. apparently between 2016 and 2020, we got 5% more people in the economy <laughs> that need these products right fucking now. So mm-hmm. we need 5% more. Some lines are 95%, because apparently we just need that. We just have to have it out there. It's got the like, and everyone can afford it. Everyone has money to go buy these products. Mm-hmm. All super rich. Yes. Right. And, um, and what I think is, all right. So the shift, say your shift starts at 6 a.m. and ends at 2 p.m. If you hit enough products that you hit that, like, like, let's say at 1230, you did enough that if the machines were down for the rest of the shift, you still got 85% for the whole day. Mm -hmm. Go home. You're done. Yeah. Like, there should be an amount. Like, that's a big problem with the concept of work is the idea that you have to work for a certain amount of time. When I could have swore that we just needed to make a certain amount of something. Right. Like, why are we keep making the thing after we already made what the geniuses at corporate decided was the, their minimum or their maximum or their amount that they thought we have to make? Why do we need more Pop-Tarts? <laughs> I think it's better when you put a name to the product, right? Maybe it is better. Like, like is anyone looking out there? Like, again, because I I, I work in this your places. chair theory again. Yes. <laughs> is, does anybody? Is anyone out there having a problem finding fucking Oreos? Like, I think that we should actually just. Ju- yeah, I'm going to go with dramatically. Like, let's cut Oreo production by 65%. Okay. And when it gets to a point that people who have money for Oreos, like all their bills are paid, everything's covered, and they're like, yo, this $2.79, I need some Oreos, and there aren't enough on the market that I'm a satisfied customer, then we bump up Oreo production 15%. Mm-hmm. And that would mean we go back to a cut of 50% and see how that works. Because we're making a bunch of shit. And I swear to fuck, I re- this this factory I'm in now, they're a lot more strict about the phones out. Or else I'd be showing y'all some shit when it comes to waste. Y'all have no 
fucking idea mm-hmm. how much waste there is. And like, and oh, it's so it's so hard to even say it out loud because without the visual, you really don't fucking get it. Like, I can just say the word a lot. I can say the word massive. I can say metric fuck ton all I want, but you really need to see the shit. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say, um, cause like I'm on a production line that actually produces. Like, they actually take the ingredients to make your fucking protein bar, mm-hmm. and they mix the shit together, and then it goes, um, and the kitchen is hot. It's a hot mixing area. And then it goes on an upper conveyor into a cooling room that turns it into bars. So the clumpy, glumpy shit gets dropped onto this conveyor, and big, giant rollers on the conveyor roll the shit out, and put out sheets and it's a big long sheet now of the product Mm -hmm. and then it goes through what's called the ms cutter and the lady that told me that i left the tag on my britches uh works the ms cutter and that cuts the sheet into separate individual protein bars and then it rolls over very hot chocolate or peanut butter or caramel whatever's gonna be on the bottom of the bar Mm -hmm. and it rolls over that and then it goes through a cooling chamber, right? Because all this shit's warm. It's not going to run through the machine well. It's just going to fucking... Right? It's just going to be dookie. Mm-hmm. So it goes through the cooling thing to harden the bars so that they can run through the packaging machine. Now, you can imagine how long of a conveyor you need for this. Like, it can, t- it can take, like, 20 minutes for, like, say, like this little... I'm on the video. This little notebook I'm holding up. If it were from the beginning of the line all the way to my machine, could be like 20, 25 minutes. So imagine what happens when the homeboy Chris, the cat that works in the kitchen, messes up the um, ingredients a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like puts too much water or not enough honey or something in the ingredients. Then easily, like 800 to 1,000 pounds is all going instantly to waste. It's not going through the machines. We're not even going to try it. We literally just stand there at our machines and watch it roll by. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. That's we messed up. And we just watch it go. And where does it go? It goes um, in boxes that are labeled farmer. Mm-hmm. Where And I mean, they're not going to feed this shit to every animal. This shit's going to pig farms. Yeah. Most likely factory pig farms. Mm-hmm. So like y'all folks that think you're just going to end factory farming... Just by saying, we don't want it no more. We're eating vegan. Um, no. You got to shut down a pretty damn cheap food supply going to feed these pigs, which is these factories that I work in. Yep. So a lot of y'all little fucking little white liberals, white progressives out there, learn more about the whole fucking game mm, yeah. before you go running your goofy ass mouth. All right. I didn't, I didn't have to end on that kind of note. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and from there, now I end Facebook Live. Okay. And there it goes. It stops. And then I need to stop the video recording internally. And there that goes. It stops. Mm -hmm. And then I need to stop the podcast audio. Someone listening to the podcast audio, you know, because they're like, this nigga might say some shit, though. He might say. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, I might say some shit like Rudolph Giuliani's nasty, nigga. You Y'all saw s- that picture of the fucking... Mm. 
not I didn't see a picture. I well I did I okay, so I saw the joint with his um his hair dye running. Yeah. Which I mean and some folks are like, that that's blood. It's like nigga, blood is a little brighter than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hemoglobin when it hits um when it hits oxygen, it really bursts up. Uh can Dr. Mo, can you let me know if I'm pronouncing that right? Hemoglobin? Hemoglobin? Yeah. Oh, you're you you are kind of doctorish too. Oh, yeah, my hemoglobin is what's fucked up because of my iron. <laughs> Oh, no shit. Yeah. So, like, if you were to get a little cutsy-poo, would it be the same red? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But it's fucked up, though. Yeah. That's fucked up. Like, I don't have enough, like, oxygen in my blood. Yeah, that's why I get, like, chest pains if I go up the stairs too fast and shit. Nigga. Yo. (laughs) It's like, why is there... Every day there's a new thing wrong. (laughs) Jesus, man. Yeah, it's fine. All right. Um, <laughs> and that's why someone stayed tuned in. They were like, see, that was going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I saw that other clip of Julie, which may be from the same press conference. Who fucking knows? Right. Uh, where he, this motherfucker took a tissue, blew his oh, nose God. in it, and then folded the side that he blew his nose in as the outside and then wiped his mother fucking forehead with it and then touched the podium with the microphones that everyone else has to put their faces up against. I, I, yeah, moment of silence for the reason awnings exist. I mean, yeah, I was trying not to go there, but this is why they'd be having those type of plagues and shit, man. Like, if... Fucking don't wash your legs in the shower. Fucking putting your snot on a podium during COVID. I don't... If we would have quarantined Europeans in Europe a long time ago, I swear to fuck so much... So many medical issues wouldn't even fucking exist. Like, really, like... Would diabetes really be a thing without (laughs) European capitalism? Oh, God. Fuck no. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, because people didn't eat sugar before the whole plantation slavery shit that was or like bad teeth right teeth like mine like phoenix has bad teeth but she's lucky enough to have them all in the back i got the bad teeth that makes people (laughs) not respect me (laughs) uh fucking like would that be a thing like if someone hadn't introduced pepsi cola to my life when i was a fucking three-year-old yeah which and i don't blame my mother for that someone introduced it to her when she was three probably i told you about the monkeys Yep, uh, six years ago, and I wish we were recording then. Yeah. All right. And that's why someone stayed tuned into the podcast audio, because you get an exclusive extra segment. (laughs) Good fucking day.